This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning. Thank you for joining me for another exciting episode of New Book Network's African American Studies podcast. I am your host, Katrina Anderson. Today, I am joined by Professor Patrick Scanlon, author of Slave Empire, How Slavery Built Modern Britain. Professor Scanlon received his PhD from Princeton University and previously worked as an assistant professor in the Department of International History at the London School of Economics. Currently, he is an associate professor at the Center for Industrial Relations and Human Resources, cross-appointed to the Center for Diaspora and Transnational Studies at the University of Toronto. He is also a research associate at the Center of for our history and economics at Harvard University and the University of Cambridge. His research focuses on labor, enslaved and free in the British in Britain and the British Empire during the 18th and 19th centuries. Professor Scanlon has also published in peer-reviewed journals of historical research, such as the American Historical Review, History and Anthropology, Journal of British Studies, and Past and Present, among other publications. He's written two books thus far. His first book, Freedom's Debtors, Britain's British Anti-Slavery in Sierra Leone in the Age of Revolutions, was published by Yale University Press in October 2017. Today, we are discussing his second book, Slave Empire. Thank you for joining me today, Professor Scanlon. Thanks very much for having me. So can you tell us a little bit about the book? Sure. Um, Yeah. Uh, So Slave Empire is a history of, um, I mean, I I guess you could characterize it as a history of the rise and fall of slavery in the British Empire. Uh, But the argument is a little bit different than a kind of conventional narrative uh, of, of rise and fall. Um, so roughly the book follows uh, the rise of the British Atlantic Empire in the 18th century, um, a, an empire that I argue was anchored in the mass enslavement of African laborers, especially in the Caribbean, but also um, in what became the United States of America. Uh, and then the second half of the book is about British anti-slavery, uh, but the overarching argument of that second part of the book is not that um, abolitionism conquered slavery in the British Empire, but rather that uh, the way that slavery ended was um, very useful to the British Empire, right? And, and anti-slavery became um, a justification for empire. So slavery built the British Empire in the Atlantic world in the 18th century, and then anti-slavery allowed that empire to continue to flourish and continue to expand in the 19th century. So how did you become interested in this topic? Uh, so my dissertation research, which became, um, as you mentioned, my 
my first book, Freedom's Debtors, was on the abolition of the slave trade uh, off the coast of West Africa. Um, and one of the, I think the main insight or the main argument that I made in, in Freedom's Debtors was that although anti-slavery rhetoric in Britain was often um, oriented towards uh, a, a kind of abstract humanitarianism, um, in practice, the process of actually doing the work of abolishing the slave trade off the West African coast um, involved an awful lot of compromise with uh, and um, uh, sort of compromise with and, and uh, profound interaction with the slave trade, right? So, so one of the things that, that happened in, in British Sierra Leone uh, was that British anti-slavery became in effect enmeshed in a system of commerce in West Africa that was built on the trade and enslaved people. Um, and so that kind of central insight that anti-slavery in practice in the British empire uh, was in many ways very different from what um, enslaved people might have imagined anti-slavery ought to look like or emancipation ought to look like. Uh, and that moreover, anti-slavery was extremely useful for um, expanding, consolidating and justifying imperial and colonial rule uh, in West Africa and later in other parts of the British Empire. Those, those kind of central insights were the kernel of, of, of slave empire. Um, so that idea that, that um, slavery was extremely useful to empire building and that anti-slavery proved to be uh, in many ways even more useful to empire building and to colonial rule uh, was kind of the, the heart of the, of the argument. Um, and so, you know, when I, was, when I finished Slave Empire, I had um, ambitions of writing a book about a, a kind of very archivally driven um, academic book uh, for a sort of exclusively academic audience about the 1830s in British politics, um, reinterpreting the history of the age of reform in Britain, uh, which is usually told through the lens of parliamentary reform. So I had the vision of, of kind of rewriting the history of that decade by looking at the history of the 1830s through anti-slavery and through the abolition of slavery act in 1833. Um, but that project kind of fizzled out. And then I got an opportunity to write, um, a book for uh, a wider audience, a, a trade book, which became which became Slave Empire. So it's those kind of two channels that that led to this book. Now, your work is in conversation with Eric Williams, Capitalism and Slavery. Can you speak a little bit about that connection between the two? Sure. I, I mean, Eric Williams has this um, really interesting and really bifurcated reputation on on either side of the Atlantic. Um, so when I was in graduate school, actually, even when I was an undergraduate, right, capitalism and slavery was in print, uh, widely read um, in, in North America, uh, certainly a, a pretty important interpretation of um, the history of, of, of anti-slavery. Um, but in Britain, Eric Williams is kind of, uh, until quite recently, had been out of print and kind of sort of oddly siloed off from um, the historiography of British imperialism and British colonialism and the rise of British capitalism. So Williams, Williams made an, a number of, of arguments in Capitalism and Slavery, which was first published um, in the 1940s. Um, all of them have been influential, but they often get um, a, a sort of blended together with each other. Uh, and so 
it's, 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 it's worth kind of breaking them up. Um, so one of the arguments that Williams made, uh, which has been, uh, I think, the subject of book length rebuttals, which I think kind of miss the kind of miss the forest for the trees in some ways, uh, is the argument. So one of the arguments that that Williams made was that, uh, in a sense, the economic value of slavery was uh, beginning to decline at the time of, of, of abolition. And that sort of empirical claim about the relationship between capitalism and slavery in the British Empire has become the argument that uh, people who disagree with Williams's other arguments kind of focus on to refute, right? Because it's it's empirically untrue uh, that slavery was becoming less valuable to the British Empire, especially at the time of, of, of the abolition of the British slave trade. Uh, but Williams's a bigger argument, in my view, is that you can't understand the rise of 18th century British imperialism without understanding how deeply and how uh, completely the mass enslavement of African labor was to the rise of British Atlantic political economy. So Williams's argument is that British capitalism was made both with and by mass enslavement uh, on especially sugar plantations in, in the Caribbean, but also on other plantations um, in the British colonies that became the United States of America. Uh, and that moreover, abolitionism in, or, or rather not, not abolitionism itself in the sense of, of opposition to slavery in principle, but the actual political movement to end slavery can't be understood without thinking hard about the material circumstances in which that political program took place. Right, so Williams argues that you can't understand anti-slavery without understanding, for in the British Empire at least, without understanding, for example, the rise of free trade, um, without understanding the, ri the, the, the rise of manufacturing, without understanding that the political power of slaveholders in Parliament was in decline, uh, even if the economic value of slavery remained constant. Um, and so Williams is sort of demystifying British anti-slavery to say that, you know, the rise of the movement to abolish first the British slave trade and then British slavery didn't come from a kind of um, religious awakening, uh, didn't come from a kind of humanitarian awakening. Uh, in Parliament, it came from a changing set of material circumstances that underwrote British politics. And so that's an argument that I take up um, in slave empire. I think in, in the broad strokes, I think Eric Williams is, is absolutely correct in that interpretation of how fundamental slavery was to British imperialism in the 18th century, and also how useful anti-slavery was to British imperialism in the 19th century. Um, because you can, you can see it in the sources, right? You can see um, the rising political power of free labor and the rising political power of free trade um, and the declining political influence of um, British slaveholders, of British sugar planters, um, and of the, the, the kind of slow erosion of the monopoly power over British sugar that they, that they enjoyed. So, you know, I think, uh, I, I hope that people will read the books in conversation with each other. Um, I think Williams uh, was writing at a time when um, the availability of sources uh, related to slavery and emancipation in the British Empire was very different, uh, but I still think, in its broad strokes, his 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 interpretation of of that transition is is correct. 
I definitely agree with your assessment on that. And I wanted to ask you, I'm not going to spoil anything for readers because I want them to go out and pick up a copy of the book. How profitable was Britain's sugar empire and how did it transform like Britain itself? Yeah, I, I mean, there's there's this famous anecdote um, that might be apocryphal. Um, of William Pitt the Younger and George the Third um, riding in a carriage in London um, and seeing an even more kind of so imagine the sort of at the you know the Queen's Jubilee and then the Queen's funeral and the King's coronation uh, imagine those kind of gilded um, incredibly ornate carriages that the royal family travel in um, on special occasions uh, and apocryphally you know, the king and Pitt saw an even grander carriage belonging to somebody whose family was deeply involved um, in slavery and sugar passing by on the street, right? And then Pitt, uh, uh, George III, again, maybe, maybe not, turned to Pitt and said, and what of the sugar duties, Pitt, or something like that, to kind of say, how is it that somebody who is a sugar planter can have a carriage grander than the king? Um, and that tells you something, I think, about the relationship between wealth in Britain, the expansion of the empire, and slavery in the Caribbean. Um, because I think, so first of all, it's it's understanding how sugar shaped Britain and the empire. Um, there are a couple of different, there are a couple of different levels um, at which we ought to think about that question. Um, so first of all, right, the sugar was an engine, um, as I argue in the book, for the expansion of the British Empire. So uh, Britain claimed uh, in the name of, of sugar planting um, a number of colonies uh, in the course of the 18th century, uh, and control of the Caribbean was an important cause of war throughout the 18th century between European empires. Um, so in that sense, expanding the sugar empire in a very kind of direct way expanded the British empire. Um, you know, with the, uh, you know, when the possibility of claiming a new sugar colony, uh, like Trinidad, um, like the colonies that became British Guiana, right? These colonies that were taken uh, from various other European empires and absorbed into the British Empire. That was a very material um, expansion of Britain's footprint in the Caribbean and Britain's footprint in the Atlantic world. Uh, but the real kind of the wealth of the sugar empire came as much from demand for sugar as from the really complicated commercial infrastructure that was built up with the trade in sugar um, and the trade in enslaved people at its at its kind of foundation, right? So sugar was extremely profitable. Um, sugar planters were among the wealthiest people in the British Empire, uh, or at least the, the wealthiest sugar planters were among the wealthiest people in the British Empire. Um, generally, the wealthiest sugar planters rarely went to the Caribbean. They received, you know, they, they owned land, claimed to own enslaved people uh, from the other side of the Atlantic. They received their, the profits as annuities. Um, you know, they, they, they lived in Britain as sort of commercial aristocrats on the profits of sugar. Um, but sugar was as important as a source of kind of direct wealth to individuals as it was uh, as, as a kind of foundation stone for a really complicated commercial system of insurance, um, of shipping, of long distance credit, uh, of banking, 
um, of employment, right? Uh, one of them, sort of the, the the part of the kind of circuit of imperial of, of, of an imperial career for someone in, for example, so someone who wasn't particularly well connected, but who was say a, a physician or a lawyer. Um, if you couldn't find work in Britain, um, you could often find work in the Caribbean, right? So the Caribbean became part of a, a kind of circuit of imperial professionalization. Um, and ultimately, right, it became, the Caribbean be, became the kind of foundation stone of British commercial prosperity um, in the in the Atlantic world. Um, and so in that sense, right, there was this kind of direct connection uh, between the exploitation of enslaved labor in the Caribbean and the expansion of the British Empire um, in, 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 in the 18th century. Um, and sometimes the consequences of that for British culture could be kind of paradoxical. So one of the things I explore in the book is the rise of what um, historians of the Stuart era, the kind of late Stuart era in the, at, the, at the beginning of, of, of the 18th century in Britain call uh, polite culture, right? So there's this, right, the, the early 18th century in Britain was an extremely violent, dangerous, um, raw time to be alive, uh, both in Britain and in the wider empire. And in culture, sort of culturally, the response to that wasn't to embrace that kind of rawness of everyday life, but rather to create this kind of extremely mannered, uh, very deliberately self-restrained way of presenting yourself to the world, which became known as, as kind of polite culture and was um, especially uh, iconically represented in the magazine, The Spectator, right? Which was a kind of extremely popular publication in, at the beginning of the 18th century, uh, full of essays on how to be polite in this very specific way. Um, so in some ways, Right, the, the impact of this brutally exploitative empire in the Atlantic was paradoxical in Britain, but it was still there. So, you know, there, there, there are all kinds of ways that, that sugar and imperialism transformed Britain in the 18th century uh, from, from uh, commercial infrastructure to uh, cultural transformation. There are, there are a number of things that come to mind as you were uh discussing how it transformed Britain and its empire. And one of the things that right now that's sticking out in my mind is you mentioned this notion of polite culture. Did that translate also into the Caribbean or was that solely in Britain? So what was kind of white colonial society? How did it look in the in the Caribbean? Were they kind of imitating or was it different? So I think in some in some ways, um, white colonial society in the Caribbean, or at least in the colonies that were the wealthiest sugar colonies, was both kind of superficially and aesthetically similar to Britain, but culturally very different. Um, so you know there are extremely well preserved Georgian uh, townhomes and mansions in. Uh, both kind of the, the the kind of great houses of sugar plantations, but also kind of urban townhouses um, across the British Caribbean, right? There, there are some really um, exceptional jo examples of Georgian architecture um, in the British, in, in what was the British Caribbean. And partly that's because sugar planters in the Caribbean um, and wealthy, um, what were called, at least in Jamaica, uh, plantation attorneys, right? Which is this kind of... Um, idiosyncratic use of the word attorney, because although plantation attorneys were sometimes trained as lawyers, what they really were were kind of uh, middlemen who would manage sugar plantations on behalf of absentee 
uh, on, on behalf of, of absentee planters. And some of them became extremely wealthy, uh, although not usually quite as wealthy as, as plantation owners. Um, and those wealthy white colonials in the Caribbean wanted to imitate British society uh, or, or, or wanted to imitate British fashions, right? Um, so you could see, right, a lot of things that were fashionable and expensive in Britain also appeared in the Caribbean because of the amount of money that was flowing through um, white planter society. Um, the same threads and, and channels of money that, that flowed back to Britain. Um, but as it was, right, at the outset, there were class divisions in the sort of 17th century in the British Caribbean. So famously, in some of the early rebellions in Barbados in the 17th century, um, enslaved people of African descent and white um, indentured servants uh, fought on the same side in attempts to overthrow the planter uh, aristocracy. Um, but that kind of um, that kind of solidarity that transcended the color line in the Caribbean really evaporated very quickly, especially as mass enslavement became the default mode of um, securing labor for sugar plantations. Um, and so white colonial society in the Caribbean became uh, extremely paranoid, um, uh, extremely fearful of slave rebellion, um, extremely reliant on the Royal uh, and often kind of reluctantly reliant on the Royal Navy and on British army regiments to defend uh, white colonists against the possibility of slave rebellions. Um, and, but it, but it, so it, it, at the same time as it became paranoid, it also became much less class bound um, and in some cases much more kind of religiously tolerant than society in Britain, right? So one of the things in, in, in the Caribbean that, that defined white colonial society was a kind of classlessness um, or, or at least, a, a, you know, you would never have somebody who was a servant eating a feast with um, a landlord in Britain, except on perhaps very significant um, kind of ceremonial occasions when that was, you know, the kind of ritual to be observed, but that happened all the time in the Caribbean. Um, and that was in part because, you know, the, the, the black majority in the Caribbean made whiteness incredibly important to the way that colonists define themselves in their own society. So that's, that's a kind of rough way to describe white colonial society as um, open internally, but extremely uh, 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 paranoid about protecting both the color line in the Caribbean and also protecting itself um, against destruction. So what exactly was a sugar plantation like? Can you kind of describe, you know, what was it? Was it kind of, and I know they probably, and they do vary depending from um, island to island, but also just in terms of size. But what is kind of like a general description of a sugar plantation? Right. So I, I forget which historian um, it is. I think it, it might be John McNeil um, who describes a sugar plantation as uh, an incredibly, um, violent and dangerous way of turning sunlight into money right and i think that that's a sort of a glib way to describe it but it's not it's not all that far off the mark right so a, a sugar sugar plantations at least in the early 18th century or the first half of the 18th century uh, before the rise of more sophisticated industrial industrial like proto-industrial factories um, in britain would have been one of the largest workplaces in the british empire um, so large sugar plantations could have hundreds of 
um, enslaved laborers um, working on them. Uh, they could have dozens of um, paid employees, uh, both uh, people of sort of from from white colonial society and also people of fr free people of mixed European um, and African descent who would have been called usually people of color um, in the Caribbean uh, who would have been paid employees. So it was something like a factory, um, especially when sugar production was happening. Um, so, you know, for most of the year, um, a sugar plantation would have been a farm uh, where the primary crop was, of course, sugarcane, although most plantations grew um, other other crops as well, um, especially cash crops like coffee or, 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 or indigo. Um, and, you know, um, enslaved people would have been organized into gangs. Uh, that was what the system was called, the gang labor system, um, with different kind of uh, sort of sorted based on age and uh, relative sort of physical health. Um, so the, the kind of first gang would do the most, um, the most kind of demanding physical labor. The third and fourth gangs would, for example, um, kill pests on the canes or, 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 or collect what was called cane trash, which is the kind of uh, fallen leaves of, of, of sugar canes. Um, and so that was very regimented, right? It was, it was and it was shift driven. Um, so it was not dissimilar, I think, to what came later um, in the early factories of, of the British Empire, uh, except it, it happened agriculturally. Um, uh, and then in crop time, uh, the sugar plantations would go from being farms into being something like a factory. Um, so one of the kind of biological features of sugar, of sugar cane, that makes it, that, that defined the plantation was the fact that sugar ferments, sugar canes ferment very quickly. Um, so if you cut a sugar cane within you know, 24 to 48 hours, especially in a tropical or subtropical climate, it starts to ferment um, and you can't make quality sugar out of it then. And so consequently, in what was called crop time um, and is still, you know, uh, you know, there are still kind of holidays in the independent Caribbean that mark the kind of agricultural calendar of crop um, in in crop time, uh, the, you know, all of the enslaved laborers on the plantation would uh, have different tasks, cutting down the canes, um, putting them through the mills and operating the huge, um, extremely energy intensive boilers where uh, the juice of the cane would be gradually boiled down um, and clarified in a series of large, usually copper boilers. And it would kind of sluice down uh, until it was finally laid in kind of deep sort of metal trenches to crystallize. Um, and so that, that period of time was uh, paradoxical on a plantation because it was both a time when um, a lot of enslaved laborers would be injured and sometimes killed um, in a very uh, brutal, um, like dangerous industrial process that was often uh, done in near darkness, right? A lot of sugar boilers operated 24 hours a day or nearly 24 hours a day with very little light and they were very dangerous machines. Uh, but at the same time, it was a period when um, you know, there, there was a lot more kind of, uh, there were more rations on the plantation uh, distributed to enslaved laborers. Um, you know, it was a time when people were generally healthier, but also much more likely to die a violent death. Um, so the plantation was this really complex, violent, um, often brutal um, combination of, of farm and factory. And of course, for, 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 for enslaved laborers, also a kind of like open air prison. Um, so it's an, an institution that I think is worth uh, thinking about 
um, critically and, and systematically because I think it, it had a very profound impact on all kinds of modes of organizing labor, both free and enslaved um, from the 18th century on. So as you mentioned, it was uh, the plantation was this brutal, violent place that was effective more often than not in producing sugar um, that would be exported, but also, but what was the experience of the enslaved members? Um, you know, how did they kind of carve out a space for themselves or were they able to, you know, given the overarching brutality um, that would be needed to keep this system in place? Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think one of the things that I, I, I write about a little bit in the book and I'm certainly not the first person um, to, to write about this um, is the institution of the provision ground. Um, so, you know, I think most people, and one of the things, you know, I'm, I'm writing now about um, the Irish famine, which is a very different kind of theme, uh, but it's the same kind of, you know, I think, I think when people um, imagine themselves in the past, right, they often imagine themselves as having a kind of, uh, exceptional bravery that most people don't have, right? So I think that, that you know, the, there was, so plantations were big. Um, and in most Caribbean colonies, the majority of people in the colony were enslaved people of, of, of African descent. Um, they had a huge numerical advantage and enslaved people had a huge numerical advantage over uh, both free people of color and uh, white colonial society. Uh, or members of, of white colonial society. Um, but the threat of the, the consequences of rebellion were spectacular, were spectacularly brutal. Right. So uh, I think that, that many people were kind of, uh, well, I mean, there's, there's this kind of tension, right. That there's this idea, I think, let me, let me reframe this. There's this idea. I think that, that plantations were places of constant surveillance and constant violence. Um, and they were certainly places of profound and oppressive surveillance, and they were places of, of bursts of, of grotesque violence. Um, but the plantations could not function given the uh, huge disparities just in population size between enslaved people and um, sort of white planter society uh, without kind of uh, almost like pressure valves within the society itself. Um, and so one of the things that, 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 that happened in the course of the development of the British Caribbean was that um, in, a, in an attempt to uh, cut costs, white planters uh, would portion off parts of sugar plantations as what they call provision grounds. Um, so rather than providing... Um, rather than providing rations to every enslaved laborer on a regular schedule, uh, planters found it more economical to just designate parts of the plantation as land that enslaved farmers could use to grow crops for their own consumption. Um, and over the course of generations, those provision grounds became incredibly important sources of food, not only for enslaved people, but also for almost everyone um, in colonial society. So you have this kind of paradoxical effect, this kind of underground economy that runs underneath plantation society, where you have this, this kind of legal fiction that people can be property and that therefore can own 
you know, people who are property legally can't own property. But in practice, enslaved people um, had very durable, long-lasting claims to provision grounds. Um, and at least enslaved people who were sort of higher up on the hierarchy or controlled prominent provision grounds would also sell a lot of their surplus at colonial markets. And so you had this kind of strange paradoxical force with, within the plantation economy where uh, people who were who, who were legally speaking property had property and were earning money selling selling crops. Um, and so one of the things I try to bring out in Slave Empire is, is, is to kind of show how both the kinds of freedom and autonomy that things like the institution of the provision ground afforded to enslaved people uh, without losing sight of the fact that this was a like a kind of remarkable cultural achievement and re- remarkable um, example of economic autonomy that was sort of carved out uh, by enslaved people over generations in the face of a system that was overwhelmingly oppressive, right? So so it's it, I, I don't want readers to come away with the idea that the plantation was a kind of totalitarian institution uh, because it just couldn't be. And so there were places that were small um, and that were fragile and that were almost always subject to revocation uh, where enslaved people could kind of carve out a degree of economic and cultural autonomy. Um, and I hope that readers won't interpret that as like, and that's, that's as like a, a kind of, as, as, as a, like an endorsement in any sense of plantation economy, but more as a sense of, of the kind of uh, uh, um, something that's worthy of, of our attention, right? Of this kind of economy that ran underneath a much larger transnational sugar economy. I agree with that assessment. And I think it is definitely worth looking into more and learning about more in greater detail. Now I want to shift our focus a little bit and talk like about the age of revolutions that's going to be going on. You have the American War for Independence. You've got the Haitian Revolution, the French Revolution. So let's start with the American War for Independence. How did that change the British Empire in the Caribbean? Um, Well, uh, I think the first kind of anecdote that's worth thinking about to kind of center to center that, um, to, to, to try to understand the position of the British Caribbean in relationship to British North America um, and the 13 colonies and then the United States of America is to, to understand that when the British, when the American War of Independence began, uh, Britain's colonies in the Caribbean rattled their sabers a little bit um, and threatened to join the United States of America um, you know, were broadly, I mean, I think a lot of people in Britain were sympathetic to the, to the, to the American colonists, um, and colonists in the Caribbean, or at least white colonists in the Caribbean were very, uh, sympathetic to the American cause and believed, you know, had many of the same grievances with the British empire as their fellow colonists on the Ameri- on the North American mainland, but they, none of the British colonies in the Caribbean joined the American War of Independence. Um, and the reason is that the Caribbean colonies relied on the kind of remainder of British 17th century mercantilist policy for their, for their livelihood. So um, under a series of laws called the Navigation Acts um, the, that, that protected British trade and under a series of other uh, acts related to sugar duties, um, sugar planters in the Caribbean enjoyed what was effectively a closed market in Britain for their sugar. So 
other, and we'll talk about this in a, in a minute when we talk about um, the Haitian Revolution, but other European empires uh, by the time of the American Revolution were producing higher quality sugar um, in greater quantity um, and with greater efficiency than Britain's colonies. Um, so Britain's colonies on an open market probably couldn't really compete with other European colonies for the European sugar market. And so they relied on the fact that they were effectively protected in Britain. Um, and so, you know, although they, the, the Caribbean colonies um, shared a lot of the mainland colonies grievances with the British empire, um, they needed that imperial connection for their economic survival. Um, and so that, that fact underwrites a lot of the consequences of the American war of independence for the British empire. Um, because, uh, uh, or the, the British empire in the Caribbean, uh, because the, the American colonies uh, were among the British Caribbean's most important trading part, uh, trading partners. Um, you know, there's a reason why uh, places like Massachusetts and Rhode Island flourished um, in the 17th and 18th century. And it wasn't from agriculture, right? They're not uh, particularly fertile places, uh, but they were hubs of trade um, with uh, the rest of British North America and with the Caribbean. Um, and they had much more diverse economies. They had a lot more settlers. Um, they had a lot more kind of independent uh, standing within the British Empire. And for the anti-slavery movement, the loss of those colonies, which seemed on the face of it, at least to British anti-slavery leaders, more respectable, uh, less violent, uh, less seedy, right? The, the loss of the American colonies opened a new space for the British Empire. Uh, because it, or, or, or rather for, for British imperial um, anti-slavery, uh, because it suddenly seemed possible to people in Britain with an eye who, who wanted to regulate or even end um, both the slave trade and plantation and, and sort of colonial slavery um, to kind of notice that the Caribbean colonies depended on Britain. And so therefore, the Caribbean colonies, anti-slavery activists reasoned, could be controlled from Britain. And so in a sense, anti-slavery emerged from the American War of Independence as an imperial movement, uh, as, as a movement devoted to um, imposing constitutional and legal reforms on Britain's colonies from London. And so in that sense, the American War of Independence set the, the, the basic structure of British anti-slavery for the next few generations um, and was really kind of crucially important to um, the launch of the mainstream anti-slavery movement in, in, in Britain. What about the Haitian Revolution? Uh, so the Haitian Revolution has this, it took, had this, and, and, and sort of concomitantly, the French Revolution had kind of paradoxical effects on the British Caribbean um, and on British anti-slavery. So in the British Caribbean, um, the Haitian Revolution, so the French Revolution initially was welcomed in the British Caribbean because it seemed like a an opportunity uh, for um, Britain, for, you know, it, it seemed like something that would destabilize France's colonies in the Caribbean. Um, and France's colon colonies, especially Saint-Domingue, but also Martinique uh, and, and other colonies were among the most valuable, productive, sugar colonies um, in the European imperial world and certainly in the Caribbean. And so the fall of France or the, or the fall of the French monarchy seemed to promise um, 
the possibility of British expansion. Um, and then beginning in 1791 and, and moving through to the, to the declaration of the, the independent first empire and then Republic of Haiti in, in, in 1804, um, the Haitian revolution had a number of effects. Uh, first, the first effect in the Caribbean was, was, was terror. Um, you know, there was a sense among uh, colonial society, among white colonists, that the Haitian revolution had to be kind of contained on the island of Hispaniola. Uh, and that it could not spread, like revolutionary sentiment could not spread to Jamaica, uh, could not spread to Barbados, uh, especially Jamaica, you know, which is is very close um, to to uh, Haiti and to, and to Hispaniola. Um, so there was a sense in colonial society that the Haitian Revolution posed an existential threat. Um, imperially, the Haitian Revolution seemed to present an opportunity to uh strike a kind of blow at the heart of the French colonial empire. Uh, but I think the most interesting impact of the Haitian revolution on, on, on is, is, is on the anti-slavery movement itself. Um, so the interesting thing about the Haitian revolution for British anti-slavery leaders is that very, very few of them um, took from the Haitian revolution, what Haitian revolutionaries said they were doing, right? So Haitian revolutionaries declared that they were, creating a, you know, a free black state and then a free black republic that was officially and resolutely opposed to mass enslavement, right? So there was a, a kind of symbol of black freedom in the Atlantic world. But for British anti-slavery leaders, uh, independent Haiti seemed to be a kind of, you know, I think, I think many anti-slavery leaders celebrated the victory of Haitian revolutionaries over France, but also sort of were dismayed at what they saw as the kind of disorder of the process of revolution of, of revolution in Haiti. And they imagined, first of all, that yes, emancipation was a necessary goal for the Caribbean, but it could not happen suddenly, right? So, so one of the kind of perverse consequences of the Haitian revolution for anti-slavery sentiment in Britain was that it confirmed the faith of anti-slavery leaders in the idea of gradual emancipation, right? So they, they celebrated emancipation in Haiti, but in the British Empire, they had no intention of allowing emancipation to take place suddenly, uh, and certainly not under any circumstances after a revolution, right? So, so that was one consequence. Um, another consequence was the impact of the Haitian Revolution on eroding um, the British slave trade or, or sort of su support for the British slave trade. Um, so in some sense, the Haitian Revolution led almost directly to the abolition of the British slave trade. Uh, because on the one hand, um, the threat of both abolitionists and slaveholders in the British Caribbean and in London assumed that the cause of the Haitian Revolution was French colonists in Saint-Domingue's over-reliance on the slave trade to supply their plantations with labor. Uh, and by importing hundreds of thousands of enslaved laborers in the years leading up to the revolution, uh, both abolitionists and slaveholders assumed that that was what had caused the revolution. And consequently, both abolitionists and slaveholders suddenly found common ground on regulation of the British slave trade as a way of kind of uh, preventing a revolution in the Caribbean. So the Haitian revolution had these profoundly, and, 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 that, and that in some sense eroded um, opposition to the abolition of the British slave trade, which is why, you know, in 1792, Wilberforce failed in securing um, a, even a motion 
committing Parliament to abolishing the British slave trade, but why, why in 1806 and 1807, the, the 1807 Slave Trade Act passed through Parliament, you know, with, with very little opposition, uh, because the Haitian Revolution had kind of um, created briefly a common ground between slaveholders and abolitionists on the necessity of preventing revolution. So it had this, this paradoxical effect on, on anti-slavery, where it, 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 despite its sort of vivid, uh, vibrant revolutionary example, it confirmed the wisdom of gradualism among anti-slavery leaders in Britain. So that's a very long-winded answer, but it's a, it's a, it's a, there are a lot of threads um, going through uh, that period in, in the history of the anti-slavery movement. That's a great answer, Professor Scanlon. That's perfect. Um, and I want to ask, building off of that, as we talked about, like the the influence of the Haitian Revolution on, as you say, the end of the slave trade. How about print culture, um, especially late eighteenth century print culture? And I'm thinking specifically um, Ignatius Sancho's letters and Equiano's interesting narrative. How did that kind of help? develop or shape the anti-slavery sentiment that was going on during that period? That's a, that's a, a great question. Um, I mean, I think, so I, I think before I answer, I just need to, one of the things that I emphasize in Slave Empire is the fundamental relationship between the way that mainstream white British society thought about people of African descent and the rise of the slave empire in the Caribbean in the 18th, in, in the, in the, in the 18th century. Um, so I think that one of the kind of consequences of the deep uh, foundational role of mass enslavement in the rise of the British empire in the Atlantic world is that even abolitionists, or at least leading white abolitionists had a kind of uh, commitment to the idea that people of African descent were in need of education in order to earn freedom, right? So there was this kind of gradual, this, this sort of bone deep gradualism in British anti-slavery sentiment that whatever happened, even sort of the most committed opponents of slavery in Britain, or at least among the leadership of the anti-slavery movement, uh, were, had no, no intention of allowing um, emancipation to take place over anything other than a really extended timeline um, and had no intention of allowing emancipation to take place without the close supervision of ideally um, sort of missionaries and uh, judges and dispassionate colonial officials, right? So, so British anti-slavery is not revolutionary. It is gradualist. Um, and so, you know, people like... Ignatius Sancho or Olaud Equiano um, wrote books that were in a sense useful to the anti-slavery cause, not because they, um, not because they uh, um, augured for the immediate abolition of either the slave trade or slavery, but rather because at least to kind of mainstream white British readers who were, um, who were uh, um, a part of this kind of culture uh, of, of gradualism, um, they confirmed that people of African descent were capable of civilization, right? So the fact that Equiano's autobiography was, uh, a, you know, a, a minor bestseller when it was published, 
the fact that Ignatius Sancho's letters were published after his death as this kind of, uh, you know, and Sancho was a grocer um, and a musician um, and kind of, you, you know, his, his letters are a really interesting look both into black life in London in the 18th century um, and also into the kind of bohemian art world of the 18th century. So these books were meant to show for abolitionists or, or rather abolitionists read these books and said, ah, yes, here is proof that people of African descent who are raised in British culture are capable of understanding and enjoying the freedom that the British Empire promises uh, to its subjects. But that didn't mean uh, that people who read the interesting narrative or Ignatius Sancho's letters would immediately conclude slavery must be abolished immediately. Rather, they would say, you know, we need to abolish slavery so slowly that every enslaved person and their, and their free descendants will be subject to a lengthy period of education so that they can um, slowly learn the kind of virtues and cultural roles and uh, rules of everyday comportment that uh, people of African descent living in Britain who are publishing books were able to learn. So the, 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 the irony of these books is that, is that they were, you know, in a sense, like a testament to the achievements of people of African descent in Britain in the 18th century, but they were read as further proof that uh, emancipation had to be gradual. Um, and I think it's, it's also telling actually that the interesting narrative, um, Sancho's letters, um, Phyllis Wheatley's poems, um, a lot of those works of people of African descent and kind of black British people, though Wheatley was, was, was born in, um, or, or rather lived in, lived in New England, um, a lot of those books went out of print in Britain, but were kept in print in the United States. Um, so there's this also kind of, uh, after the kind of abolition of the British slave trade, I argue in, in, um, in, in slave empire, there was this kind of lull in British anti-slavery when the expected effects of the abolition of the British slave trade didn't take place. And the people who were blamed for that were people of, of African descent, right? The, the, the idea was um, within anti-slavery thought in Britain was that the abolition of the slave trade would cause both slaveholders and enslaved people um, to slowly, through the, oper the kind of gradual operation of the rules of supply and demand and the rules of political economy, slavery would gradually improve. Um, they, even, they, they called it amelioration, the amelioration of slavery. Um, and over generations, slavery would become less and less oppressive, uh, more and more open, and eventually would just kind of fade away. Um, and that didn't happen. Um, in fact, that period after the abolition of the slave trade was a period of increased revolutionary activity among enslaved people in the British Caribbean. Um, and so the kind of gradualism and celebration of the cultural achievements of people of African descent in Britain that characterized anti-slavery in the late 18th century faded out um, and was kind of kept in motion um, in the United States, especially in the 1840s and 1850s, when a lot of these early British works were republished uh, when white abolitionists in the United in the United States were trying to make similar arguments about enslaved uh, people in 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 the U.S., um, so there's a really interesting transnational history of these books, um, as well as a really interesting history of these books' influence um, on on anti-slavery in Britain itself. So, who was this? Who was actually promoting the anti-slavery ideas, and did that change over time? Um, so. Anti-slavery was, 
So I would say I, I one of the things I, I try to do in the book is to separate different generations of the anti-slavery movement. Um, and so I think the most important generations or not most important, the generations that get the most attention in the book are the ones who passed, who, who uh, promoted first the 1807 abolition of uh, 1807 Slave Trade Act and then the 1833 Abolition of Slavery Act, which ended colonial slavery in the British Caribbean and most of the British Empire, although not, although not all of it. Um, and they were very different. Um, so one of the, so the, the movement, uh, in that the, the, the leaders of the movement to abolish the slave trade in 1806 and 1807 were the leaders of a patriotic movement, right? You can see in the popular culture and kind of ephemera, if you go to the Victorian Albert museum or, or any, uh, museum of, of British design, um, that holds a lot of kind of the everyday stuff that people would have in their homes, not just wealthy people, but also, you know, uh, people in the middle classes and even below, there's an awful lot of crockery and printed ephemera and, and, um, uh, and prints and paintings celebrating the abolition of the British slave trade. Um, so this, the figure of Britannia, the kind of mythical representation of Britain and British power, um, holding the 1807 slave track, the slave trade act, or holding a sign that says slave trade abolished, right? That, that image repeats itself a lot in all kinds of, um, printed and sort of print culture and material culture at the turn of, uh, just after the, the, uh, beginning of the 19th century. And that's because in 1806 and 1807, the abolition of the slave trade was a patriotic movement. It was a movement that was explicitly that explicitly and by design uh, connected the abolition of the slave trade with the war against Napoleonic France. Um, and in some sense, Napoleon's decision in 1801 to launch a like truly genocidal campaign to reconquer what was then revolutionary and independent Saint-Domingue and would soon become free Haiti, right? That was an incredible um, boon for the anti-slavery movement in Britain because it allowed anti-slavery to be officially opposed to France, right? If Napoleon was in favor of slavery, Britain ought to be opposed to it. Um, and so that movement, that 1807 moment was a moment of patriotic support for a cause that had become closely associated with British liberty in, in, in opposition to French tyranny with British freedom and with sort of the, the, the kind of expansion of liberty that the British empire was supposed to represent in opposition to the kind of um, slavery and, and, and tyranny that Napoleon represented. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people supported the British, um, um, the, the, the abolition of, of the British slave trade in 1806, 1807, and it was kind of widely promoted in all kinds of publications. Um, and the anti-slavery, the leaders of the movement published, uh, so for example, um, James Stephen, uh, one of the authors of the 1807 Slave Trade Act, wrote a pamphlet uh, called, um, I can't remember the exact title, but it's a kind of biography of Toussaint Louverture for working people in Britain um, that was, you know, widely distributed. You could buy it for pennies. Um, Thomas Clarkson wrote a really large, much heavier kind of 1200 page history of the abolition of the British slave trade um, that was published right after in, in 1808. That was for kind of more sort of middle-class readers, but there are all kinds of ways to sort of celebrate and promote 1807. 18, 1833 was a very different kind of movement um, and had become like anti-slavery in 1833 was much more closely associated with 
a very specific kind of middle-class reformism within Britain itself. Um, so the anti-slavery society, uh, the, which was the um, uh, kind of, um, which emerged from an older anti-slavery society called the British and Foreign Anti-Slavery Society. So the, 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 the anti-slavery society in Britain was a primarily a middle-class movement. Um, it was organized in a very specific way that, that was characteristic of British reform movements in the sense that it had a, a, a kind of central bureau in London and then a whole bunch of provincial chapters scattered across Britain. Um, its tools, like in 1807, were the parliamentary uh, petition, um, the mass meeting. Um, so, you know, I think most people, like the, the, the movement leading up to 1833, that was an era of mass meetings, whereas the movement leading up to 1806 was a movement of kind of uh, buying and selling commercial ephemera and books and pamphlets um, and signing petitions because of them. Whereas in, 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 in the lead up to the abolition of British slavery, you know, uh, there's a famous, there was a famous building on the Strand in London called Exeter Hall, uh, which became almost a uh, synecdoche for the British uh, anti-slavery movement because these huge meetings would take place there. Um, and remember, this is an era before um, the amplification of sound, right? So people would not necessarily know what was being said, uh, but speakers would get up on the dais and sort of give anti-slavery speeches and just the, 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 the mass meeting was meant to convey um, the, the depth and power of the movement. Um, so you can track the evolution of British reform and the kind of patterns of British reform movements in the development of anti-slavery between 1807 and, and, and 1833. You know, what's interesting is you was mentioning, you know, the different time periods and you have the 1807, as you noted, the abolition of the slave trade, and then you have 1833. We're actually talking about the what they called end of slavery in the British Caribbean, but we'll get into that in a few moments. But there's a figure that I often think about um, and one that I'm working with personally myself, which is Mary Prince and how she fits into this narrative or does she? Yeah, I, I mean, great. Uh, yeah, I mean, so so Mary, Mary Prince um, was... Her her autobiography, her 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 life writing, which was, uh, if I'm you know, sort of dictated uh, according to um, the publication, right? Uh, dictated and then edited. Like, you know, it's clearly um, her life story that has been kind of filtered through a series of um, editors within the anti-slavery movement. Um, so Mary Prince was, in some sense, uh, her story was a story that characterized the sort of person that abolitionists in the British, at least sort of mainstream abolitionists in Britain considered to be the kind of person who was um, ready for immediate emancipation, right? And in some sense, the fact that she was ready for immediate emancipation was meant to show that um, other enslaved people were in greater need of close supervision and a kind of didactic education in how to use their freedom before they could receive emancipation. Right. So, so Mary Prince's story is a story of, you know, uh, brutal exploitation, um, sexual assault, um, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, personal and familial tragedy. Um, but at the same time, Mary Prince, she emphasizes in her autobiography is trying to earn money to kind of purchase her own manumission. Um, and she's married, if I remember correctly, to um, a free uh, 
uh, tradesmen, uh, but she's separated by him by the threat of re uh, threat of reenslavement. And so, in some sense, she represented the kind of ideal proof to people who might have been skeptical of emancipation, because right, this was published in the early 1830s, right on the eve of the 1833 um, Abolition of Slavery Act, when the anti-slavery movement was was um, sort of gathering its strength again to make another push for an end to colonial slavery. Um, and so Mary Prince, in some sense, represented a kind of ideal person to um, exemplify the readiness of people of African descent for freedom, right? Here's somebody who is uh, married. Um, here's somebody who is already earning wages, um, despite the intense limitations on her freedom of movement uh, that that enslavement or the threat of reenslavement presents. Um, here's somebody who has kind of uh, endured um, with forbearance all of the violence and ignominy of enslavement. Uh, and so consequently, she is not like Mary Prince is ready to be freed by Britain. She's not a revolutionary. She accepts the tutelage and the support and the help and especially the kind of um, not, not like moral superiority, but sort of civilizational superiority of Britain. Um, and so in that sense, I see Mary Prince as being you know, a, 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 a really remarkable person in the sense that there are very few records of enslaved women, uh, uh, enslaved women's life writing in British imperial history. Um, she's one of very few, uh, especially published books. But at the same time, you can understand a lot about Mary Prince's life by reading her autobiography, but you can also understand a lot about the kind of person that British abolitionists wanted the public to think about when they thought about emancipation, right? They wanted um, the British public to accept an emancipate to, to accept emancipation because it seemed as though most people, if you, if, if, yeah, if you understand what I mean, it's a kind of, she was like, um, you know, in, in the, in the run up to the publication of her autobiography, right? The abolitionists were looking for somebody whose story they could tell, um, which is also something that happened um, in the course of, um, the era of apprenticeship, right? There were, there were, uh, there were a couple of, uh, autobiographies published after the abolition of slavery during the period of apprenticeship of kind of similarly placed people in the British Caribbean, people who would represent, um, exactly the sort of civilizational process that British anti-slavery promoted. Um, but yeah, Mary Prince's story and the circumstance of the publication of her, of her life, um, are, are really interesting and, and, and really important for understanding um, the anti-slavery movement. And we finally do get to that final Emancipation Act and Mary Prince, she was on the cusp of that in 1833. Yet, you know, what's interesting is, you know, once it happens, you know, did it really change the lives of the enslaved population? But I want to back up for a second, because before you even get to that Emancipation Act of 1833, there's this whole series, and you alluded to it before, of rebellions that were going on, which kind of had left questions in the minds of whether or not the enslaved population could fully be emancipated or were they ready for this idea of emancipation and I'm thinking about Barbados and British Guiana and finally you get to the Baptist War in Jamaica uh, 
but yet there are these, there is this sense of violence and how much of that, you know, as you've alluded to before, have helped these questions in the minds of abolitionists and others, whether or not the enslaved population was even ready for freedom. Yeah, right. So you're, you're right, right. There are three major, there were rebellions by enslaved people throughout the 18th century um, in the British Caribbean. And one of the things that I really like about uh, Vincent Brown's book, uh, Tacky's Revolt, um, is the way that Brown shows the kind of um, historical memory of enslaved people throughout the Caribbean and of, of previous rebellions, right? So I think for British planters um, and for British abolitionists, there was this kind of uh, a, a sort of sense that enslaved people were incapable of the kind of historical thinking that people of European that people of European descent were capable of of, of, of doing, right? So there's this kind of deep, profound uh, racism to the way that both white abolitionists and slaveholders think about the historical memory of enslaved people in the Caribbean itself, right? The sense that you know, that, that, uh, nobody in Jamaica remember Tacky's revolt. Um, you know, nobody in the Caribbean really knew much about the Haitian revolution, except in the kind of, except in a very kind of abstract way. Um, but of course that, right, that wasn't true. Um, and in 1816 in Barbados, um, in 1823 in British Guiana, and then in 1831 in Jamaica, um, there were pretty very significant, slave rebellions uh, in the Caribbean. And as you mentioned, right, for the British anti-slavery movement, uh, these were catastrophes, or at least public relations catastrophes, because the argument that abolitionists made to the public was that anti-slavery would, uh, and the kind of gradual amelioration of slavery would stop slave rebellion. And that you needed kind of um, without, uh, like that, that, gradually moving towards emancipation, the end of the slave trade, that these were movements toward curbing rebellion uh, and creating a kind of new uh, Pacific society among enslaved people in the British Caribbean that would be appropriate for a transition to freedom. Uh, but of course, rebellion uh, put the lie to that assumption. Uh, and so consequently, every single rebellion um, especially in 1816 and 1823, needed to be attributed among leaders of the anti-slavery movement to something other than anti-slavery sentiment, which is this one of the kind of weirdest ironies of the specific way that abolitionism unfolded in the British Empire, and one that I think can only be understood in relationship to the slave, emperor, slave empire of the 18th century. Um, so you had, for example, in Barbados, uh, in 1816, which was a rebellion, you can see, you know, there were flags preserved or, or copies of flags preserved carried by enslaved rebels that clearly show British imperial um, symbolism on the flags, lions, um, people of African descent wearing British clothes, Union Jacks, the flag of the Royal Navy, right? All this British symbolism was on these flags. It's pretty clear that in the 1816 rebellion in Barbados, the rebels thought that they were had already been emancipated and that white colonists were keeping them in slavery, and that if they rose up, the British army would join them, which is absolutely the opposite of what abolitionists wanted. Um, and so abolitionists in, in Britain uh, hastened to try to explain that rebellion as one that was caused by um, a falling off in the quality and amount of um, 
um, uh, provisions and rations that were provided to, to, to enslaved people, right? So rather than being a political rebellion, the 1816 rebellion had to be recast as a food riot, basically. And that same process occurred in the rebellions in 1823 and in 1831 as well, right? There was this intense desire among the abolitionist movement to, uh, for example, in Jamaica, to cast um, Samuel Sharp, uh, one of the national heroes of Jamaica and one of the leaders of the rebellion, as somebody who was um, devoted to the vision of gradual emancipation, even as he led a revolutionary movement for immediate emancipation. So there's this bizarre tension uh, born of the series of, of, of racist ideas about the political capacities and political imagination of Black people in the Caribbean that shaped the anti-slavery movement. And, and if I think if readers come away, like I'm trying to, and I, I've done this teaching undergraduates as well um, in Britain, which is, it was an interesting experience, right? Because this, this, this interpretation of British anti-slavery um, is not that, it's common, I think, in, in North American histories of Britain, but it's not particularly common in Britain itself. Um, and so, you know, understanding that tension between um, the revolutionary sentiments of enslaved people and the profoundly reactionary and gradualist ambitions of anti-slavery leaders um, is really important. And it's really clearly visible in these moments of rebellion in the early 19th century. I definitely agree with that assessment um, that you just spoke of. And the second part of my question that I wanted to, and I don't want you to spoil anything for readers, but a little bit about the Emancipation Act. Um, can you allude a little bit about um, the lives of the enslaved population without giving away too much? Because I want readers to go out and actually read that part themselves. And I know for some, um, they might be surprised at what they find. Yeah, I, I mean, I do think that, that that chapter is one of the ones um, I like best in the book. Um, I think it's one of the the better the better parts of the book. It's it's on um, uh, apprenticeship, right? So the the eighteen thirty and I think it's it's the the eighteen thirty three um, abolition of slavery act was primarily oriented around compensating former slaveholders for the loss of the people whom they had once claimed as property. Um, and that was, you know, and, and if you read the book, you can kind of get the parliamentary play by play of how that happened. Um, I think there was certainly, there were certainly uh, anti-slavery leaders in parliament who were uh, opposed to the specific structure of the Emancipation Act, but ultimately who accepted it, right? There were that, you know, because they, they would rather, you know, in a sense, like the Emancipation Act was a kind of compromise uh, between um, the realities of imperial administration and the ambitions of anti-slavery, um, something which some historians of British abolitionism have taken as evidence of a kind of like deep division between uh, real abolitionism represented as kind of radical abolitionism and a kind of false abolitionism represented as imperial policy, which I don't think is a fair way of understanding the way anti-slavery actually worked. Because I think if you want to understand how anti-slavery worked in the British empire, you should look at how anti-slavery actually worked in the British empire. But I'll, I'll, I'll set that aside. 
Um, so under the 1833 Abolition of Slavery Act, the two main prongs of it were the establishment of a 20 million pound compensation fund uh, that former, now former slaveholders could make claims against the fund uh, based on the number of people they had claimed to own, um, and a period of apprenticeship uh, where formerly enslaved people in the Caribbean would be required to work um, under conditions very similar to enslavement uh, for the people who had once claimed to own them for a period of as initially as many as four, as few as four and as many as six years. Um, so uh, apprentices who had worked uh, doing what was called predial labor, so labor directly related to the cultivation of sugarcane, um, were to be uh, apprenticed for uh, six years. Um, but in the course of those six years, they were going to be um have, have part of their time devoted to doing the labor they had done while enslaved for the people who had claimed to own them, uh, like to continue to work for 40, 40 hours a week, just over 40 hours a week on plantations for free, um, and spend the rest of their like quite literally free time learning how to earn wages. Um, and of course, as we've talked about earlier in, in, our, in our conversation, like enslaved people knew what wages were and knew how to earn them, right? So the presumption that enslaved people needed an education in how to function within a, a free market economy was um, a, a kind of false premise of British anti-slavery. Um, and, and then the other kind of non-predial laborers who are people who would have been tradespeople um, or uh, rangers or drivers uh, who are people who managed um, enslaved laborers or, or coerced or disciplined enslaved laborers who were themselves enslaved, um, those people would have had four years of continuing apprenticeship where they would basically continue to work as though they were enslaved, but at the end of those four years, they'd be emancipated. And the logic of those two, of that, of that distinction was that people who worked in the fields had more to learn about how to be free than people who were, for example, an enslaved blacksmith or an enslaved farrier um, or an enslaved servant. Um, that those people, because of their kind of proximity to white, to white society, and because most people who did those kind of jobs um, worked uh, under conditions of slavery uh, most of the time, but also hired out their labor or shit, you know what I mean? Like if, an, an enslaved farrier, for example, would shoe the horses of the people on the plantation where he worked, uh, but would also probably do work outside of the plantation for money. Um, and so the idea was that that sort of person was more ready for um, emancipation than somebody who just worked in the fields. And so the Abolition of Slavery Act was looked very, very little like what enslaved revolutionaries wanted from emancipation. Um, what it looked like more was a way of both um, securing the consent, very, very reluctantly given, of former slaveholders to an imperial law that would um, dispossess them of what they thought was their, of, of people whom they imagined to be their property for generations. Um, and also to set the table for a civilizing mission to be led by missionaries um, and jurists in the Caribbean in the wake of emancipation. So, you know, the 1833 act was a compromise in parliament um, and looked very little like um, the emancipation that, that, rebels had, had fought for that people in the Caribbean, enslaved people in the Caribbean had imagined um, for generations. Readers, I definitely want you to go out and as um, prescript Professor Scanlon said, that 
the whole book is great, but that is one that will definitely blow your mind as you're thinking about this whole process of what freedom looks like. So, Professor Scanlon, I want to ask you, what do you want readers to take away from the book? Um, so, I think it depends. I mean, obviously, uh, I hope that everybody will... Um, I, I So, I, I think it depends, right? I think that um, North American readers, I think, I hope will take away from the book uh, an understanding of slavery in the Atlantic world that is a little bit less focused exclusively on the American experience um, to show that yes, like ju just as mass enslavement is uh, inextricable from the rise of the United States, um, uh, sort of a, an essential and indelible part of the American story, it's also an essential and indelible part of the rise of the British Empire, but not in the same way. So I, I hope that North American readers will understand that that slavery in the British Empire was a different institution. Um, I mean, it had similarities with with slavery in the United States, but in many ways, it was a different institution with different consequences in Britain and in the Caribbean, um, and that it needs to be understood both in relationship to American slavery, but also on its own terms. Um, and so in that sense, I hope that North American readers will read it as a... Um, uh, a, a caution against a kind of exceptionalist understanding of slavery and empire and political economy um, in the United States. Um, British readers, I hope, will read it. Um, you know, I think there's there's a kind of moment now, which is good to see um, in British popular culture uh, and in British popular history, where at least some Britons are thinking more about the legacies of colonialism and the legacies of slavery in British society. Um, and I think that that's good um, and necessary and important. But at the same time, I do think there's a kind of uh, uh, heroic narrative of abolitionism in Britain that is emerging, right? So rather than being, and, and you can see this in, in um, all kinds of, of recent, uh, like quite briskly selling books about that are intended to kind of rehabilitate the British Empire, right? To say, ah, yes, yes, of course, Britain participated in slavery in the 18th century, but look, Britain was also the first Europe, major European empire to abolish its slave trade, the first major European empire uh, to abolish colonial slavery. Um, and so therefore the real story of British imperialism is freedom rather than slavery. Um, and to those readers, I hope, those readers, I hope, will read Slave Empire and see that the story is much more complicated and much more morally ambiguous than that. Um, and to remember, you know, as, as Eric Williams wrote, um, and I'm paraphrasing him in Capitalism and Slavery, right, you would think that, like, Britain invented the slave, you, you would think based on the way that British abolitionists wrote about slavery in their own time, and the way that apologists write about it in the present, that Britain invented colonial slavery just to abolish it that Britain participated in the slave trade just so that it could uh, end its participation in the slave trade. And I think that that, that attitude um, has become more pervasive in uh, apologies for the British empire in the present. And I hope that British readers will see that British anti-slavery was not without its achievements, right? The abolition of the British slave trade in 1807 and of colonial slavery in 1833, right? These are substantial achievements of British politics in the 18th and 19th centuries. But what those laws and what those achievements meant 
for enslaved people and for um, emancipated people and for their descendants uh, looked very, very different than what those people themselves desired, right? And so I want I want to draw people's I, I want to draw British readers' attention to the distinction between imperial anti-slavery as a project of continuing imperial consolidation and colonial rule and a kind of more uh, grassroots impulse for emancipation and autonomy that came from enslaved people. And I want people to understand that one of those two forces won out. Um, and the force that won out was a very imperial version of anti-slavery. Um, and I don't mention this in the book, but, you know, I'm, I'm Canadian. Um, and it's worth noting, right, that, that in 1867, uh, um, you know, Canada under the British North America Act became a British Dominion. Um, and in 1867, uh, after the Morant Bay Rebellion, Jamaica, after having one of the longest sitting um, colonial legislatures in the imperial world, became a crown colony. Um, and in part, that was because of the legacies of the slave empire, right? Jam like J Jamaica, the, the British Empire couldn't countenance a Jamaica that was where, where most of the legislators were the descendants of enslaved people. Um, and that wasn't because of that was both because of events after emancipation, but it's also because of the very long history uh, of, of slavery and imperialism in the British Empire. So um, in a sense, like this book is more for British, for, for people interested in the British side of things. And I wrote it while I was in Britain. Um, so, but I, I, I hope that there's something in there for, for um, every reader. I definitely think there is. Definitely, even though, as you say, it's targeted, for the British, um, as you mentioned, if for the those in North America, one of whom is myself, you know, there's this idea of Britain, especially the land of freedom, especially as I'm thinking about, you know, 18, starting 1840s, 50s, 60s, you have the Black Americans going over to England to get that transatlantic support to end slavery in American society. Yet, what you show us, there is a much more complicated narrative as to how this is how this all happened, um, especially on the British side of things, that it wasn't easy. Um, so I truly appreciate that. And I think readers will, too. But before we wrap up, I had a question for you. What are you working on now? Uh, right. Uh, thanks. Uh, yeah, I am uh, almost finished the manuscript for a book. Um, that is uh, tentatively called the Irish question. Um, although I am um, getting, maybe I'm not completely married to that title. <laughs> so that may not be the title that it comes out on uh, under, but that was the title that, that uh, it was that I'm, it's the, pro, it's the provisional title, um, which is a book uh, that'll come out in 2025, uh, ideally um, uh, from Robinson in the UK and from basic um, in North America on the place of Britain, uh, the, rather the place of Ireland in the British Empire from the Union um, in 1801 to just after the Irish famine in 1851. Um, so it's a history of the Irish famine uh, that is meant to uh, place the famine within uh, a, a much longer history of the relationship between Ireland and Britain, because there are, there are a lot of books about the Irish famine um, a lot of them focus on a kind of blow-by-blow blow account of the uh, kind of just horror of the famine itself, which is which is in this book as well. Uh, but few of them, I think, uh, try to explain 
you know, the, the, the way that Ireland became so prone to famine in the first place. Um, and I locate that, that, that propensity to famine and vulnerability to famine um, in the history of colonialism in Ireland in the 18th century, and then the acceleration of British imperial industrial capitalism after the Act of Union. Um, so that's, that's what I'm writing now. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, if, if, if all goes well, it'll be, it'll be out in, in, uh, in 2025. We are very excited for your next work, having seen this work and your previous work as well. Professor Scanlon, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Readers, please go out and pick up a copy of Slave Empire. I want to say it's for academics and non-academics as well. You will not regret picking up a copy of this book. It is thought-provoking. It is persuasive. It is an, an incredibly important work that helps reshape how you think about slavery and abolition in the British Empire. So please go out and pick up a copy of Slave Empire today.